Welcome to Playgrounding, a podcast, blog, and YouTube channel all designed to help you learn to love yourself, own your thoughts, and have some fun. Hey guys, I'm back. This is Kara Stewart Fortier, and this is Playgrounding. Today, we are going to talk about where in the world was Playgrounding in 2018? I mean, for goodness sake, my last episode was just before the holidays, December 2017. So I literally just skipped 2018 altogether. And on today's episode, you're going to hear why. And you'll also hear about what I've learned over this past year, which is quite a lot, and how Playgrounding is going to be same-ish, but different going forward. One difference is that instead of just interviews, we're going to have a couple of additional weekly segments. One is called The Real Right Now, which is all about learning to own your thoughts, and Recess, which is about the things we adults can do when it's time to get out there and have some fun, and the communities we have fun with. And of course, the purpose of all of this is to help us learn to love ourselves and to give ourselves permission to play and love our lives and then watch that love spill out and infect our families and our friends and even our work. So, all right, let's get on with episode 42, the meaning of life episode. And if you don't know what that means, never mind. Anyway, here you go. So thank you so much for joining me. I want to welcome my guest for this episode, number 42 of Playgrounding. Um, My guest is me. I figured before I jump back into guests with my new little thing going on here, I would explain myself a little bit and also tell you some of the changes that you're going to start seeing in Playgrounding going forward. Um, Not just like formatting, things like that, which there will be a few, but I want you to know what Playgrounding has become. Um, in my mind, um, part of the reason why I needed to stop it and what needed to change. So here we go. Um, I have a very clear idea about what playgrounding is now. And as I was trying to come up with the best way to explain myself, I read this article because I've been going through and like I have my Google alerts. So I get like hundreds of things that I sift through every day. And this article just drove me crazy. It was on the effects of positive thinking. And I got really mad. (laughs) I mean, I went through, I like to go through these things just to see what people are saying. And what it did was it tell me all the wonderful health effects. I think there were five, um, five health effects that you would get out of positive thinking. But it didn't tell me how to become a person who thinks positively. Now, if you've ever struggled with negative thoughts or your thoughts would spiral out of control and take over your life, you know how hard it is to change them. Um, There's no switch that you can flip and suddenly become a positive thinker and obey this magazine's instructions and then suddenly have all these wonderful health effects. And reading articles like that remind me of the time my husband, which he doesn't do this anymore, said to me in the middle of a horrible anxiety um, day, just one of those days where I was staring at the wall with my brain buzzing like a hornet's nest. He said, but there isn't anything to be worried about. That's the same feeling I got from that article. Don't worry, my husband knows much better now. But anyway, the reason I bring all of this up is I feel like playgrounding was doing that exact same thing that this article was doing. Now, back at the time, I didn't have like a clear idea like that, that this is what's wrong. I just knew something was wrong and I couldn't put my finger on it. It just felt ineffective, not potent, you know? I was talking about play 
I was extolling the benefits of play, um, but I really didn't address what it means to become a playful person, like how that even works if you're not. And I, I wasn't just thinking about what you out there might be thinking, you know, when I was saying I didn't feel like it was potent. I wasn't feeling it. I wasn't living it. I was not a playful person. I did not feel free enough to really embrace play myself. Um, something drew me to the topic, obviously, and I was a very playful person at previous points in my life, almost to a degree that people thought were, it was annoying. <laughs> That's why when I did move into this community, I felt very at home. But, you know, I interviewed those people. I interviewed the inspiring, playful artists and all this stuff. And I knew I wanted what they had, but I had no idea how to get it how to pl become playful again. I mean, I remember being playful. I remember that it came naturally, but it was all a very, very distant memory. Um, so I started thinking about something I learned at a talk at the U.S. Play Coalition's conference, a session with a gentleman named Gregory Manley. He's the artistic director of City of Play in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. His talk was about adults in play, and he referenced this thing called the play cycle, as it is studied for children. And there were steps that I won't go into all of them, but I'll tell you about the very first one. It's the one that stuck with me and kind of helped me reopen a dialogue with myself that I've been obsessed with from childhood <laughs> all the way through college. And that will be what we talk about at the very end. But the first step is called the metalude. Now, before you lose me on a jargon thing, I apologize. But I kind of want to like actually talk about it. It's kind of amazing. And it, it's really what was like this little seed that got planted in me at the conference. And then I just, as I started to feel less and less like playgrounding could keep going, this little seed just kept growing. So I want to tell you about it. A metalude. It's a funny word. But I want you to think of it like the kickoff whistle, you know, like in a football game. Um, it marks the, the beginning of the game. It marks the mental shift into play. And the reason why it stuck with me was because that was what was missing for me, um, that I felt like I couldn't even get across the starting line. So my favorite idea that he shared in his talk was that it was to think about a kid getting ready to go out for recess. So if you're sitting in the sitting in their classroom and you're working on your spelling words and suddenly the, the bell goes off and you're a little kid, it's really easy to make that switch. You throw that pencil down, put that paper in your desk so nobody copies you, you know, um, and you get in line and you get out to the playground and you play. Now, this is before you decide what to do. This is before you decide what game to join, who you're going to play with or whatever. This is just that mental shift that means it's time to play. So my favorite definition of metalude comes from a PDF I randomly found. And if you search for metalude, um, this is the top result. It's from the, it's hosted by the city of Oxfordshire in the United Kingdom. It's called the play cycle. It says the metalude is an inner reverie or contemplation that precedes play. And then as if it's part of the definition, it actually asks a question, which is funny. It says, do we have thoughtful, stimulating spaces, objects, or images that will spark metaludes? That stopped me in my tracks. Do I have thoughtful, stimulating spaces, objects, or images that spark metaludes, that spark me to play? Like something, something just was wrong in the ignition for me, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, so I really needed to understand it. But I did have that as a kid. And I would really love to have that recess feeling again. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. You know, in the big, huge black hands of those clocks, there was no second hand, but it just 
clicked into place at the exact time, like 10.09 or whatever it was. And suddenly it was like everything changed. And we don't grow out of the capability to enter this metalude, but we do grow up and have all kinds of things get in the way of this metalude. Um, for kids, responsibilities were compartmentalized. You know, they what they knew that they were responsible for paying attention and doing their spelling words. And then when the bell rang, they knew that it was their time. Um, you know, it belonged to us and we knew it. We knew we didn't have to fight to carve out time. It was given to us on a plate. We just ran out and had play at playground time. And at the recess bell, we knew that. But you take that into our little five o'clock time here in our adult lives. We might work a few more hours, rush off to pick up kids, make dinner, answer some more emails, and then eventually numb ourselves to sleep, uh, maybe binge something, have some wine, maybe go to a happy hour, and we get up the next day for the same thing. Um, and I don't know about you, but for me, there's been less and less time that belongs to me as I got older. I think a lot of people, for a lot of different reasons, feel that way, that the older we get, the less we feel like we have a right to that playground time. Um, we can try to fight that tendency, but it's kind of an uphill battle when we just try to just resist it. Or we can write it off as the nature of humanity and just be like, oh, well, I guess that's how it is. And I'm a grown up now, so I'm not going to have playground time anymore. And that's how we get bitterness. And that's where we can start leading to all kinds of really bad things. Um, so this is where I left off last year. I was already struggling. And if you've listened to the previous episodes, you probably knew that maybe a little bit. I, I heard it in my voice. I cringed to listen because I just felt like I was just kind of flailing a little bit. Um, and then Me Too hit. And it was an amazing positive step for women all over the world. Um, but for those of us who've successfully buried trauma relating to sexuality, it was kind of like a bomb went off. And you know one of those bombs that, that goes off and then it sets off all kinds of other bombs in all kinds of other areas of life. And the anxiety that I was keeping just at bay um, became literally impossible to navigate. And at this time, I knew I wanted more from life. I knew I had been playful and joyful before, but I'd given up everything that lit me up. It was almost easier when I was stuck in the weeds of corporate America, you know, going to the doctor for what turned out to be just another stress-related symptom, you know, a rash, hair falling out, grinding my teeth, hormones unbalanced, whatever it was that particular month. Um, but in my frustration, I did make the rash step of moving here to this artist, artist colony here in LA. And once I was surrounded by all these playful people, you know, the ones that I had on the podcast um, in, over the first 41 episodes, I started wanting my playful life back, but I didn't know how to get it. And there were no articles on the power of positive thinking that were going to get me there, and I needed help. So I want to apologize for going offline the way I did. I know many people who take a break from this world of online stuff make a big announcement, um, but I, just, I didn't even know what I was doing. I just know I needed to stop. I knew I wasn't okay. And I knew that I needed to just take some time. I didn't want to try to explain myself or apologize. I didn't know if I was coming back. Um, I just found that I was starting to skirt the edges of my own shame in conversations with guests. And that made me very fearful. Um, I can say that now. But at the time, I was just scared of everything. And I didn't really know why. So now, a year later, I've had a lot of time to think. 
I went to a local community college. I took audio editing and radio classes. I went to therapy, that's for sure. I, <laughs> I traded wine for a real anxiety medicine. I journaled. I read lots of books um, on mental health issues. I've taken a lot of time on my own. I'm an introvert and I've always felt obligated to go to every party and hang out with tons of people because that's what people do around here. But I don't do that anymore. I've brought my real friendships in real close and I stopped expecting myself to be friends with the whole world. And I know myself well enough now to, to give myself those kinds of gifts and I have energy to spare and I've surprised myself the other day by running all the way to the top of a hill that the, the first time I tried to go up that hill, I had to take like four breaks to catch my breath just to walk up. Um, and the reason I went to that hill was I went to go check the mail and I realized that the sunset was going to be amazing. So I raced over to this park. I parked my car and I ran to the top of the hill so I could see this sunset and take pictures. Like, was that something I ever would have done a year ago before I went through all of this work? Absolutely not. But it is something that I do now. Um, so I really have started discovering that playful person that I wanted to be. And I'm not out of the woods yet. I am still on medication. I'm on two different kinds of medications. And I'm, on, I'm getting off of one here in the next couple of months, which makes me really happy because it means I've been making good progress. And... I'm really lucky because I've had health insurance that covers mental health, but I am feeling good and ready to have a real conversation about play. And it's definitely not the same conversation we were having before. It's That's part of it, but a small part of it. Maybe not small. Never mind. I'll just say it's part of it. I was just missing a lot of the other pieces. I was doing what that article did that said, hey, look at all these cool things you should be doing so you'll feel better. Good luck trying to figure out how to do it. Bye-bye. Um, I didn't want to be a part of that. So playgrounding is going to be a conversation about mental health, creativity. I want to give listeners what I needed at the time when I felt I desperately wanted to play, but I had no idea how to get there. I hope that makes sense. I want to give you a little glimpse of what I want Playgrounding to be about going forward. The first one, mental health. I found an article on vice.com called The Young and Uncared For, The Dark Truths Behind Our Obsession with Self-Care from Their Burnout and Escape Issue. It came out December 11th of 2018, and the author, Shayla Love, describes the experience of a young woman, Baba, having a panic attack on a bus in South London. Now, Baba was wait on a waiting list for therapy from a national health care system because her job didn't cover mental health. And while she waited, Shayla says, she turned to self-care. And I'll read you an excerpt of this article. It's really great. You should definitely check it out. I'll put it in the show notes. Baba read books on depression and anxiety, listened to podcasts, and tried to follow the advice they gave her. She'd heard, it, she'd heard exercise was an antidote for anxiety and began running weekly. Her sister raved to her about mindfulness meditation, so she downloaded an app. She tried journaling to empty the burdensome thoughts from her head, but in the depths of depression, she often didn't have the energy to pick up a pen to write the date, let alone pour out her feelings. The bigger issues, the self-hatred, the guilt, the pressure, the self-doubt, as she described them to me, remained. Baba's story is illustrative of two converging trends, the inability of institutional health care to address a mental health crisis among young people today, and the rise of an industry selling the promise of mental health with the kind of aspirational messaging usually reserved for luxury brands. 
And it's estimated that in 2016, 275 million people worldwide experience an anxiety disorder and around 268 million experience depression. And the crisis is not only in the diagnosis, but in the profound lack of proper care. In 2017, the nonprofit Mental Health America found that 56.5% of U.S. adults with a mental illness received no treatment, and neither did 64.1% of American youth with major depression. From the ashes of these increasing mental health burdens has risen a trendy, Instagrammable solution, self-care. We young people suffering in unprecedented numbers have been forced to take on responsibility of caring for ourselves and have fallen under the spell of a hashtagable term to do so. Whew. Yeah. I'm not so young anymore, but it tears me apart that so many young people are experiencing depression and anxiety. I didn't start experiencing any of this until my late 30s and a lot of it had to do with some traumatic events in my life but to actually have this kind of anxiety at such a young age it just tears me apart and so what does this article have to do with playgrounding this is exactly what this is exactly like the reason why I'm recording this right now I want playgrounding to be a constructive voice for people like Baba and I believe that I'm not a, I'm not a mental health professional um, but I think play is really important. And when I would be in therapy or in groups, um, they would always tell us to go out and do something, do anything, something that, that sparks us, that makes us happy. Um, but I would always just kind of chuckle to myself going, wow, now that I'm in these shoes, I don't really know how to get there. Um, and I believe that for many of us to even try to access this metal loot or to actually give ourselves the chance to play, we need to know ourselves a little. We need to figure out what lights us up. And not only that, but feel free enough and feel like we deserve to play. We deserve to block that time out of our day. It, it feels selfish. We have to justify it. And I, I'm talking to you. <laughs> it might sound simple, but that's not a simple thing for many of us. And Shayla, the author of the article, counts herself among the youth struggling with those mental health problems. I am also on that journey um, in my mid-40s. I see play as an important part of self-love and self-care. But as Shayla points out, there's so much more to it than what you find on Pinterest and Instagram. Um, although I am having a really great time on both platforms with my little play quotes. <laughs> um, anyway, shameless plug. But um, I want playgrounding to also be about the confounding, exciting, and ephemeral aspects of joy. Now, we've all heard that joy is not happiness, and that happiness is a temporary emotion. It's, a, it's that joy is something deeper, and it's often talked about in spiritual circles, but I want to bring it here to the realm of play, because I believe that play is also a very spiritual thing as well, and takes the shape of whatever the person is that's talking about it. When Matthias Paulson... Um, it's an amazing organization called Counterplay in Denmark. He wrote an article called We Can't Force Play. And I really love it. And he writes about play as a quote unquote wicked problem. It's like a phrase I've never heard before. I think it's awesome. It's a problem that is difficult or impossible to solve because of incomplete, contradictory, and changing requirements that are often difficult to recognize. Play is just a weird thing. He describes play as a continuum. And I'll quote from his article here. On one end, we engage in what looks like play from the outside. Well, it probably is play. We may be laughing and having fun, but it feels shallow somehow. 
We're going through the motions, but we don't lose track of time. We're still all too aware of ourselves, of our bodies, of our presence in the room. The magic is absent. This kind of play is often directed in an attempt to make play happen. Here and now. It's when you put it on your calendar, I'm going to play. Um, and when it doesn't do you any good and you don't really feel any different afterwards, eh, it's on that side of the spectrum. Sorry, I just ad-libbed. Sorry, that was me. I'm <laughs> getting back to Matthias. I'll quote for here a little longer. On the other of the continuum, we let go. Sometimes when we're really good and very lucky, play can create a space safe enough for us to be together without facades and pretense, without the concerns about being serious or looking good, where we dare to be open without the stuff that's difficult and we usually don't talk about. This is when play becomes personal, when we forget about time and place, when we're just there in that moment together, showing who we really are. When this happens, it's a bit like magic. Just look in the eyes the way they shine. <sighs> Thank you, Matthias. This is definitely one of my favorite um, organizations that I really hope I get to make it to the Counterplay Festivals one day. Not going to be able to do it this year, but one day I will finally make it. Um, but yeah, I definitely know the difference. I feel like when we just try to put play on our calendars or we choose things that we do for play because they kind of make more sense because of what looks good on Instagram. I don't know. I will be definitely going into that at another time. But when we really go deep, something happens. This kind of joy emerges. And I believe that this kind of deep play, which is a phrase Mr. Polson uses all the time, is a byproduct of joy and also vice versa. That, you know, joy and play are different things, but they relate to one another. And when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with a particular concept that I found in C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. They're the authors of Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings, respectively. So I went on to double major in philosophy and literature, where I wrote about this particular idea over and over in different classes. And I ended up with a master's in theology, where I, I, I looked at it from another angle again. And Here's what it is and why I'm the right person to come back and relaunch a podcast on play. In C.S. Lewis's autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he describes a certain toy in his nursery. He describes the feeling it gave him and the way it sparked his imagination. But even more, it gave him a strange and exciting feeling. And it seemed kind of weirdly fleeting and he wanted to capture it so he could experience it over and over again. But it just wouldn't stay. And as he grew up, he encountered this sensation again and again. And he really loved books. Um, so in literature, he would read about the epic battles of the Nordic gods, and that became his thing. For me, it was C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia early on in The Hobbit. Um, for him, it was the Nordic mythology. And throughout his life, the pursuit of that sensation, that fleeting thing, became a sort of obsession for him. And he describes it like this. It is that of an unsatisfied desire, which itself is more desirable than any other satisfaction. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and pleasure. He was describing this feeling that felt like a longing. Um, oh, another quote, he was, it was merely the mental track left by the passage of joy. It was not the wave, but the wave's imprint on the sand. For all images and sensations of if idolatrously mistaken for joy itself, soon honestly confess themselves inadequate. And I found this kind of idea, again, in Matthias's post, where he compares play to love. 
um, further down. Um, you've got to read this article. It's so good. I'll make sure it's in the show notes. He says, we should think of play more like love, not just in the sense that we love to play, which we do and deeply so, but that play is similar to love on a more fundamental level. Love takes time and effort. It demands sincerity, openness, patience, and trust. There are no shortcuts to love, no way to bypass the long, slow process of getting close to another person. You can't hurry love, right? Even after all that effort, there is no guarantee you'll feel it or that the other will. It's generally a, a bad idea to look for love with a very specific outcome in mind. The same is true for play. And this, seems, this sounds very much similar to me to what C.S. Lewis is saying, that when you get that amazing feeling inside, that joyful feeling, you want to capture it, you want to have it again, but the harder you try to have it again, to take it like a drug, um, the harder it will be to access it. And love is the same. When we fall in love with another person, when we learn to fall in love with ourselves, and it brings me back to Baba and her longing to save herself through these products and hashtags and empty promises and articles about the five benefits of blah, 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 um, that don't actually really give us anything. Um, and I, I just kind of want to like, and I'm not trying to make fun of the effort. I'm just saying, if you're in the heat of these kinds of problems, if you're really struggling with anxiety, reading these articles can just make you feel so much worse, um, especially if people send them to you, which well-meaning people do. Um, it just makes you more frustrated because you know they don't understand. Um, so learning to play for me has been this amazing process of learning to love myself and learning to be gentle with myself, of stopping trying to force myself, um, stopping things that would numb me to the world. After about a month, um, after I traded wine for real anxiety medication and therapy, I was sitting with my dog watching TV and I looked around my living room and I got this huge lump in my throat and I suddenly felt incredibly grateful for my home. I wasn't doing some kind of gratefulness exercise and trying to think of something to be thankful for. It just popped up in me. I was grateful for my dog. I was grateful for my husband. I was grateful to myself for the care that I put into decorating that little room and the, the cleanness of it. Um, and for the first time in years, I saw my own living room. <laughs> I didn't see the dust or the things out of place. I saw a lived-in room that was cozy and wonderful to cuddle my dog in. And for me, that was my first taste back of joy. Um, and it was similar on Thanksgiving, same kind of thing. I was at my first social occasion, being the only one not drinking out of the people at the table. And, and we were playing a game of cards and we were all laughing so hard. And I said something like, oh my goodness, am I high? Because I feel like these anxiety meds are really messing with me. I'm a little over the top. And one of my friends said, no, no, you're just having a really good time. And this is what it feels like. Whew. Now that was something that I needed to hear because it had been a really long time since I had just felt something like that. Um, I have playful artists and creators and innovators who won't be talking about mental health at all, but each week I will make sure to talk about these other two things, about going deep, about finding community. Um, I'll also be sharing stories and little readings um, that I find inspiring along the way. I'm going to call it story time. I'm really excited. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so either the guests will be talking about them or I will do smaller segments so that each week we actually touch on all of these things. And as you listen, 
If you have ideas for any of these segments or want to be on the show yourself, please email me at kara at playgrounding.com or just click into the website playgrounding.com and click contact and, you know, just do your thing. (laughs) Oh, and you can also hit a little button at the very bottom of the website. You can click the microphone button and you can send me a three minute audio that I can put up on the website, on the, on the podcast or you know, we can talk about it and we can expand it and make it like a whole segment or you can be a guest, um, whatever works for you. I want to hear your ideas. So thank you. Thank you for joining me after my long time away. Thank you for listening to my um, interview with myself. Um, I can't wait to dig into a longer conversation about play, about deep play and about how our mental health um about who we are as human beings and how play ties into our mental health um, and ideas for ways to engage it and have fun on that continuum of play. That's the bell. Pencils down. It is time for recess. This is time that belongs to you. Every week, we're going to talk about fun things we burned out adults can do and why finding a playful community is so important. And to kick off recess, here's a little interview with the person who sparked this idea for me in the first place. I interviewed her on my podcast before. It's Robin Leggett of the Seasoned Athlete Podcast, telling us how she found her playful communities, what it means to her, and how you can find yours too. Can you talk a little bit about your playful community? Well, I my I'm in a current community which is Spartan racing, um, and that's my playful community right now. So I do Spartan races, obstacle races, and I have found I've been doing this for the last two years, and I've just found this amazing community through obstacle racing where I could go to a race by myself, get on the course by myself, and run into all sorts of people who know me or I've met or I've only know online. Uh, actually, I was I was at a race this weekend, and I met somebody who I had only spoken to via Instagram. And huh. she's she's a member of the Spartan community. She posts about it. She follows my posts. I follow hers. And I had actually posted on Instagram like, "Hey, look for the lady with the blue hair because I've got blue hair." <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. like, "If you see me, come say hi." And I was sitting and having a beer after the race, and I hear this uh, this woman say, "Excuse me, are you Robin?" <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah." And then I recognized her. From, from her pictures and so we got to meet in person which was really cool but that's that kind of speaks to the Spartan Racing community and before Spartan Race I did roller derby yeah. for 11 years and that community I mean I joined it mostly for the community when I first started that sport um I was living in a new city, which is Los Angeles, and didn't know anybody. And so I just wanted to meet people and make friends. And I found this, this up, you know, rising sport at the time back in 2003. And so when I went to practice, it's like my goal was to just find like-minded people. And I ended up like making friends for life through, Aww. you know, family through this sport. And, and the community is now this worldwide community where we always joke that if you go visit a city, you have a couch to sleep on no matter what. So um, I think the community that I found through roller derby is part of what drew me into my new sport, which is obstacle racing, what I found through that world as well. Wow, that's awesome. I really love what you're saying about 
that you know you have a couch to sleep on anywhere. It, it's a common bond that literally can take you global. <laughs> yeah. Well, and through obstacle racing now, I'm a coach. And so I visit, if I visit a city, the first thing I do is look for their local obstacle racing or Spartan gym if they have one. And mm -hmm. if they do, I contact them and I'm like, hey, I'd like to drop in. And they let me drop in. I was, I was up in Fresno about a month ago and mm -hmm. dropped into their gym and the, the, one of their main Spartan coaches spent, you know, 30 minutes with me just working on my spear throw because I happened to drop in and I was passionate about the same thing that he's passionate about. So that's, awesome. that's like the, the Spartan version of the couch is the, the gym and the workout scenario. <laughs> that's awesome. And what is what is the magic? What makes it so good? I think there's a couple things. One, at least in these particular communities, is a shared uh, focus on health. And so we're in this we're in this thing together and we really are focused on living, you know, being obsessed about something. And I think a lot of communities that, that you're drawn to it, you know, you get excited and you get obsessed, but <laughs> the obsession is about something that's good for you. That's physically good for you. And it's a physical challenge. And generally by doing these physical challenges, we also want to eat better. And uh -huh. so it's this, this like, community that we all support each other in our healthy decisions and you definitely don't see that as much in a work community where it, usually the focus is happy hour and you know <laughs> yeah. and there's there's donuts when you get to work and things yeah. like that and sometimes when you when it's a work-based community you have to fight to live a healthy life where in this yeah. community everybody's on board with it and it's really cool um and then i go back to that kind of obsession thing it's like we're really passionate we're all really passionate about this thing that maybe people who aren't a part of the community don't fully understand like why yeah. why would you pay money to go out into <laughs> nature and crawl under barbed wire and lift and carry heavy buckets up and down a hill and like all these things that just sound awful in like any sort of weather like I did a, I did a race once here's a good example I did a race once and it was in January and it was freezing cold sideways rain out on that oh, course man. and oh, yeah. by all accounts like that's awful and you know we were trudging through the course and suffering through the course and somebody runs by me and just jokes that hey we paid to do this and it's like kind of <laughs> It lightened the yeah. moment, but it's like, it's true. Like, we're, mm -hmm. we all signed up for this and paid money to kind of torture ourselves. And not everybody gets that. And yeah. not everybody gets roller derby where you're going to put on roller skates and hit each other at high speeds. Like, a lot of mm -hmm. people are like, I'd never do that. Yeah. But on the inside, we get it. Like, people in the community all get why we're there and what we get out of it. And so I think that's something that, that comes from a community like that. That's awesome. And and I think when people imagine themselves, like, joining, finding something, you know, for people out there who don't actually have this kind of community. And I had a time in my life where my community was specific as a single person living by myself, but then also really only having some friends at work that I only you know, they're my work friends and, and my family who I saw once in a while. Um, it seems like a really high barrier to entry where you're like, well, I can't even imagine finding, where am I going to find friends? You know, <laughs> but you didn't like, you're, you're no different from anyone else. You, when you started roller derby, as you talked about on your episode with me, that you just decided to do it from like, <laughs> you just decided to go join this community. Yeah. I, well, at the time I felt like I had no choice because I was miserable. 
Like yeah. I was alone in this city and I didn't really have friends and I wasn't happy here. And it's like, I realized that I had to do something. And so, and at the time, like Craigslist was the place to go, which kind of sounds funny now, but <laughs> that's where I went. And I didn't think I'd find a sport. Like that was not what I was looking for at all. I thought maybe I'd find like a karaoke group or something. <laughs> like I don't know. I'm like, what do I like? So the sport thing was just this weird left turn that I took that ended up just completely changing my life, which is kind of, and that's a cool thing about seeking out community, especially if you are by yourself. Like there are other people out there who are like you. I'm even right now as a member of these communities, I work alone. Like I work from home. I have my own business. I'm by myself a lot of the day. And so I crave connection. Like yes. I, I crave it. And so I love being a part of something. And in my case, a couple of things where I can go even by myself, I can show up by myself and probably run into a few people that I've met over time or have spoken to online or I've been to their gym um, and and be able to connect with them. And so it's nice even when when you're not with them all the time that you have that option to kind of seek that out and be around it. And mm-hmm. and it, it's nice. I like it. Wow. That is really amazing. Yeah. it's. I really feel like there are a lot of people out there who are, you know, maybe struggling and don't even know that what they're capable of until you try. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's a little bit scary yeah. to put yourself out there and try something new. But yeah. But the reward that can come from the other side of that is worth it. And with, you know, the Internet being what it is, it's very easy and it's easy to find community, but it it can be scary as well. So it's, you do have to put yourself out there a little bit. But I, it's so worth it, especially if you're alone, especially if you don't have a lot of connection out in the world. Like, find it. It's worth it, I tell you. Wait, what's real right now? Welcome to the first installment of The Real Right Now. The purpose of this weekly segment is to give you practical tools and tips and methods to help you own the stories you tell yourself. But before I start, I need to say that I am not a mental health professional. In the real right now, I'll be sharing tools and tips that are helping me along the way with links to um, books and teachers that I learned them from and that kind of thing. I'll be sharing those in the show notes. But if you are struggling with overwhelm, stress, um, anxiety, depression, get to a therapist if you possibly can. And if you can't right now for whatever reason, these types of proven exercises are incredibly effective, but they're not quick fixes. They'll take a little investment on your part. And um, I know when I didn't have access to regular therapy, I grabbed onto these types of tools and I worked them like they were my job in life. And it has paid off in spades. Um, So today I want to introduce you to one of my favorites. I use this almost every day and have been for about a year now. Um, I don't know what I would have done without it. Um, I learned it from a mental health app that I got back about a year ago, but it's not supported anymore, so I'm not going to talk about it. Um, But this particular meditation was meant as a five-minute audio meditation, but I was so like kind of just struck by what I was learning, what I learned from it, that I decided to turn it into a journal prompt for myself. And that's what I've been using daily. Um, The idea back in the day came from a man named Michaela McDonald about 20 years ago. Um, 
And since the app is no more in the show notes, I will link you to a woman named Tara Brock. I think that's how you say her name. Um, she has a ton of resources on her website, tarabrock.com slash rain. It's T-A-R-A-B-R-A-C-H dot com slash rain. I have nothing to do with Tara Brock except that I admire her work. And I think that's a good resource, um, a good place to find more information on this particular meditation. There are a few versions of rain out there that have evolved over the years, but the one I'm going to share is what I learned um, because I love it so much and it's worked for me. I also have a resource for you from, from me. Um, I created a downloadable PDF with a link to Tara's website at the top too. Um, you can print it and put it in your desk or put it in your journal, whatever. It has the four steps with some silly animal pictures. Um, you don't have to sign up for anything. You have to put your email address, just come in, grab it and go. Um, we're going to spend the next few weeks digging deep on each of these four steps. So let's get started. Since I learned this on a meditation app, I have to do this. I have to. Welcome to Meditation with Rain. First, Get into a comfortable position where you can relax and breathe into your belly. If you're driving your car, for the love of God, please keep your eyes on the road. First, R. Recognize your feelings. How do you feel right now? About your relationships, about yourself, your work, your body, your health. Next, A. Allow or accept that this is how you feel. Accept your feelings. The letter I is for investigate. What do you notice? What do you think these feelings tell you about what you believe about yourself or others? N is for nurture. If you are sharing your feelings with a wise friend or mentor who loves you unconditionally, what do you think they would say to you? What would you say to a friend you love unconditionally if they were in your position right now? Say those things to yourself. Okay, did I get it? Did I get that? Did I get the meditation voiceover gig? Because I would really love to do that. Anyway, so today I am going to start with the letter R. So how are you feeling if you, if you really sit with that question? Um, the first time I heard this meditation, I had to stop here. I had no idea how to describe my feelings. This is when I hit pause and opened my journal for the first time. I began finally to picture my feelings, just sort of try to use my imagination instead of name them because I knew I had to be having feelings. <laughs> um, so what I was, this, what I did was I pictured, just tried to imagine what my brain would look like, what my mind felt like, and I pictured a hornet's nest. I pictured chaos, a storm. Um, I called it anxiety um, because that was just the first thing off the top of my head. I feel anxious, <laughs> um, but I really wanted to see more. I wanted to see deeper to how I felt. That first day, all I could really identify was fear. I felt very afraid. Um, yeah, it was anxiety. That was very much the surface feeling I was feeling. And But ultimately, I would discover that in that hornet's nest and in that storm, there was deep grief, anger, and longing, so much more. Basically, the voices of self-hatred were so incredibly loud for me. I, I didn't even identify them. I just considered them part of the landscape of my mind. Um, I took self-hatred as just a fact of life, and I didn't even see it as an anomaly back then. Um, so this process was really the seed that was planted, uh, that it helped me start developing true self-compassion. It was that first step. 
feeling my feelings and acknowledging them and recognizing them in the first place. Um, now, this might be uncomfortable at first. In fact, it probably will be. And we cover things up and try not to think about things for a reason. And if this type of process uncovers feelings for you that are too frightening, too traumatizing to work with on your own, just don't do this. Find professional help. Even if you think you don't have coverage, make an appointment with your doctor. They can help point you in the direction of some available resources. Um, anyway, but if you can, if you do feel comfortable with this, challenge yourself to dig deep. Next week, we're going to talk about the next step. But for this week, just focus on recognizing and identifying your feelings. Um, yeah, it's not as easy as it sounds. <laughs> um, but next week, we will talk about acceptance. We'll dig a little deeper on acceptance. Um, but if you want to, if you want to dig deeper now, uh, if you just can't wait, go to Tara's website and just get just dig. There's so much great stuff there. Um, but until next week, go to playgrounding.com slash 42, download the free PDF with a link to Tara's website. And I just really hope you like those animals. I mean, I like to keep things a little silly. Come on, it's playgrounding after all. Thank you so much for joining me. I am so excited that Playgrounding is back. New episodes will be in your feed every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. <laughs>